Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. As we've highlighted several times in the episodes of this podcast, race is complicated. And one of the problems we run into is that the discussion of race and its complications are often oversimplified. In today's episode, we speak to Professor Yasmin Irizarry, who is an assistant professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, but also affiliated with the Sociology Department, the Population Research Center, the Mexican-American and Latino Studies Department, as well as the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, all here at the University of Texas. This is the first of a two-part episode in which Professor Irizarry discusses the various misconceptions we have in regards to studying race and how we've measured race and the racial experience. In this first episode, Professor Irizarry highlights that the misconceptions we have about how race is understood globally translate to problems in terms of understanding what blackness means in the U.S. to various groups, specifically immigrant groups from the Caribbean and Latin America. In the second episode, Professor Irizarry will discuss how many of the findings we've come to with quantitative analysis, because they fail to understand the intricacies of race, the various intersections of race, come to false conclusions regarding the race problem in the U.S. We begin this episode with Professor Irizarry discussing various misconceptions and how they have plagued the social sciences. As a quantitative sociologist, I I spend a lot of time staring at numbers. Uh, But one of the things that I realized really early on is that while the qualitative work, um, the ethnographies, the in-depth interviewing, in essence kind of simplifying them, because you have to, you can't get all the complexity. But it seems that in simplifying, people have become so simple that they um, uh, really describe with broad brushes. They also don't spend much time thinking about how they define, how they measure, how they conceptualize, um, how they analyze, how they interpret the Black experience um, using numbers. And so a lot of my work is in taking what I know um, from these uh, amazing qualitative scholars, from these uh, really uh, phenomenal theories, and trying to think about how can we think about those quantitatively? How can we incorporate those ideas into the way we measure race and Mm -hmm. racism, the way we um, think about uh, groups and populations, um, and the way that we think about how we analyze and understand uh, these experiences? And so trying to think about um, how to capture, I can't capture all of it, right? It's not possible. That's not the purpose of quantitative work. But how can we better capture that? And in doing that also... Um, maybe uh, elucidate or bring out some of the um, the problems inherent to all this simplification. So what are some of the main misconceptions that you challenge? There, there's some several different areas. One of them really is just with this idea of uh, how we measure things, right? So as I'm a methodologist, mm-hmm. and a lot of my time is thinking about when we're measuring something that inherently isn't numeric, right? So we have numbers. If you're tall... You're six foot three. We know that you are about 75 inches, right? Um, but that's something that is inherently numeric. Um, in the real world, things like race, efficacy, um, engagement, 
success. These are not uh, numeric things. These are qualitative things. And a lot of our time is spent trying to quantify that, right? And how much time we spend thinking about that. And people, when it comes to some of these other ideas, spend a lot of time thinking about how to quantify those things. But when it comes to race, they don't. They default to the things they already know, to the things that they've uh, learned from their social world, as opposed to actually really thinking about when I categorize, when I group, when I assign, when I ask these questions, what am I actually capturing in these measures? Who am I actually including in these groups? And so um, I do this in many of my classes. Even if I'm teaching statistics, I spend some time on measurement mm -hmm. because... Uh, we tend to take for granted the groupings without ever stopping to go. Who's in that group? Mm -hmm. Why are they in that group? Can we say that that group is representative of a particular experience, of a particular mode of racialization, right? And so uh, that's, I think that's one of the major misconceptions, this idea of how we measure this, this assumption that when we see things about race in the media, in research, wherever we see it, that, that somehow we take for granted these categories and the measurements as though they're somehow inherent mm -hmm. and as though someone didn't actually have to make decisions about where people fall, about um, what groupings they're represented in and what those groupings mean. Past guests talk about, specifically I remember Trayvon Logan talking about race as an experience. And what I seem to get uh, getting from what you're saying is that we are not fully capturing this experience because it's not something... An experience is something that's very difficult to, to, to quantify. There are multiple things going on. So when you think of race, gender, sexuality, even income, there's, there's an experience there and that we are using this measure in many ways to try to, to I guess, be a stand-in for this experience. And in many ways, it, it can be very faulty. Yes. And there's several ways that works. One of them is in this, what I was speaking about, the measurement part, because um, depending on how we group people, we're making assumptions that those groupings have a similar experience. Like part of the reason that we decide people are in a group together is they have a similar experience. And so when we make decisions about that, that will impact what we find mm -hmm. um, and that'll impact our outcome. So it's really important to think about who we're grouping together and whether those groups we're saying belong together really have the same experience. Are we seeing within, let's say, the ethnographies and in-depth interviews um, that people are saying they're having the same experience? Are we seeing something different? That should inform how we think about who we group together. Mm -hmm. The second part of that is in uh, the complexity of the analysis. So, you know, in quantitative work, uh, your work is most likely to be ac accepted in journals if you uh, stick to main effects, um, where you're thinking about these kind of broad swaths, right? So the black effects. Now, the truth is there is no black effect because it can't be a cause. But it'll be described like that as though somehow we could understand the entire black experience with a coefficient. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that without the, um, the nuance of investigating the complexity behind that, we don't know why that coefficient looks that way. Okay. We don't know. That coefficient is an average, and an average can represent many different things. It could represent a similar experience across the board, or it could represent two opposite experiences, or it could re represent an extreme experience of one subgroup that no one else within that group experiences, all captured within this one single number. And so in, in this part, thinking about the idea that it's important that we not just think about these uh, numbers, this kind of like broad brush but also think about how that number may vary among different subgroups, how the black experience varies. And that is so important because if we're thinking about intervention, um, if we're thinking about policy, um, if we're thinking about aid, um, if we're thinking about support, we cannot do those things if we don't know who 
we're providing that too, because we're not providing it to every person that may embody that one characteristic. There's clearly someone within that group that needs those things. But how can we target our efforts and how can we think about where there's success and where we can improve if we don't know who we're actually trying to help? One of the things you mentioned is the groupings, and I know there's a lot of discussion regarding the census and how uh, groups categorize, and I know you've done a lot of work on this. Can you, uh, I guess, can can you tell us a little more about what you've been doing regarding the census and where you see the failures of the census in regards to how it treats race? That's um, interesting question because I actually just had uh, Dr. Nan- Nancy Lopez visit from the University of New Mexico. She's been very involved with um, this work, thinking about how we uh, quantify race on the census, but actively evolve. We've been working on this together probably since 2011, mm-hmm. and. Um, Really, uh, the bulk of our work is in the area of thinking about how uh, Latinx populations are identified mm-hmm. um, or categorized within the census. But it, it really becomes much broader than that because um, the, the the starting point for our kind of efforts is really centered on what is the goal of the census and what is the goal of these measures or these questions. And the census, uh, at least presently, is really about the allocation of resources and the um, efforts towards justice, right, towards um, dealing with any inequities or at least inequalities Mm -hmm. within the system. And in order to do that, we need to know which groups are experiencing what, right? And so in thinking about um, the, the census as something that's really about what people are experiencing, um, that brings us to this idea of ascribed race, right? Because what you experience is often shaped by how people see you, mm-hmm. who they think you are, and then what opportunities then um, you're given. This also ties into who you are and how that's tied into previous opportunities and how that builds into whether your family has uh, has had previous wealth and opportunities that can help bolster right your own um, path. Mm-hmm. But um, bringing that all back and thinking about all that, right? Because the purpose of... Uh, of the census is an important part of thinking about how we measure something like race. Now, um, historically in the census, uh, race was a measure that was uh, an ascribed measure. Someone, an enumerator would come and would look at you and would go, Uh, Eric McDaniel, black, right? And they would check the box and you didn't have control over that. And um, that is in, in essence, this kind of described or this outsider, right? Uh, uh, Attribution of race. Um, but uh, 1960, that changed. Now, individuals are allowed to uh, self-identify their race. And for a time, um, there were cases, in most cases, where what someone said about who they are and what they were perceived as matched. But if you remember our history, we've had lots of in-migration since then from parts of the world that see race very differently than we do. Not that it works entirely differently, but at least it's seen differently, right? Mm-hmm. The, the categories are different. Who fits where within hierarchies is a little different. And we have individuals coming, and now they're here, and they want to assert those identities. And it's so important, especially for coalition building, for groups to build identities. But those identities are not always reflective of experiences, and so the big tension we have now is, is what drives the categories, right? Is it what people see themselves as or is it what other people see themselves as? When those things are in conflict, we run into a lot of problems because then we, we wonder what our measures are actually measuring. And so this, uh, this really um, comes full circle with the Latinx population because um, – Latin America is very diverse. The same populations that migrated to the U.S. and mm-hmm. have migrated to the U.S. for uh, centuries have also migrated to Latin America. There are people who are Jewish and Italian 
and people who are um, West African Mm -hmm. and um, people who are Chinese. And they all live in Latin America, too. And they're all Hispanic or Latino or Latina or Latinx. Um, They all are able to identify that way. But the question is, when they arrive here, do they all have this uh, supposed joint like Hispanic or Latinx experience? And I would argue that they don't. That uh, that while this is a a great coalition building Mm -hmm. category, that in terms of the experience of race and racialization, that people have very there's wide variation in the experiences um, within this group. And so the big fight right now is uh, do we do we go with. identities and identification that are built around this coalition building that may mask inequality or hide the differentiation within the group or try to find ways to actually bring out the differentiation so we can find out what maybe Afro-Latinx groups or individuals are experiencing that is often masked within these larger categories um, or or those of indigenous um, ancestry. Right. And so and we can't flesh any of that out if everyone checks a box that says Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is... um, uh, part of this larger debate of thinking about who is categorized, how, and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does that category capture an experience? And so there are there are people on both sides of the debate. Some people are are for this idea that individuals should be able to um, um, have control over how they're seen, right? But the difficulty I run into is that even if we say we have control, it doesn't mean that we actually do. Mm-hmm. You could tell me that you're white. And you could say it over and over and over again, but I would doubt that that would translate to your wealth changing, to your opportunities changing, to your interactions changing very much. It might give, you know, people might give you some interesting looks, but I doubt that it'll actually change that experience. And so when that conflict exists between identity, between how individuals want to self-identify and how they're categorized, Mm -hmm. this is where we run into those problems. Do I then take what you tell me when you say you're white and add you to that category and assume that that's your experience? Or do I find other ways of trying to figure this out? And so this is really where we're going with this, trying to think about what are ways to actually be um, more nuanced um, and and also more accurate in thinking about race as this um, driving force in inequality Mm -hmm. that shapes our experiences. As you were talking about this, specifically in comparing the the Latin American experience with race uh, compare, and also with the North American experience is the idea of race as a social construction, meaning that, one, the way you understand your race differs from differs based upon where you are uh, and how you identify differs as well. I think there's what research that, that demonstrates in Latin America that uh, individuals become, they see themselves as more likely being white as their income increases. And that whiteness is linked to income. And the way we think about uh, black, white, or these other categories is much more complicated. And it differs from, you know, from country to country and locale to locale. And so that just checking the box saying that you're white, saying that you're black, or anything of that nature, it doesn't always mean the same experience because of this social construction that is in, that is fluid and is constantly changing. Yeah. It, it may not it may not for the first generation, but often by the third or fourth it does. So many of those um, stars that we look to and go, these are representatives, uh, African-American uh, stars, singers, uh, um, politicians. Many of them are actually Caribbean and Latin American, and we don't even know 
because by certain by a certain generation, a lot of the language is lost. Um, mm-hmm. But that ancestry is still there. Um, but early on, you're absolutely correct. When you're um, moving to a new place, and when you're raising your children in that place, you bring those ideas, you bring those understandings with you um, from wherever you're coming, and um, that's going to shape how you see the world. And it's also to some extent, depending on how obvious those markers of maybe foreignness Mm -hmm. are, it may also shape how people respond to you. But you can have someone who comes and who looks like the Pope, right? Italian ancestry, Mm -hmm. and may receive some discrimination for having a Spanish accent or Spanish surname. But I would argue that their experience is not the same as someone who looks like many of our baseball players from the Dominican Republic, who would come with the same accent and would also be Catholic. Mm and yet would probably have a very, very different experience. And so, yes, there is um, a part of this that is most definitely shaped by um, how people understand race, where they come from. But there's a part of this that's shaped by the way our world, or at least our society, our country works in terms of race, that um, does not change just because someone brings with them ideas from elsewhere. But you're absolutely correct. Um, Latin America has very different understandings of race. This comes from the way... uh, uh, Race was treated historically in Latin America. I I like to tell my students one way to think about it. In the U.S., we have the one drop rule, right? Yes. The one drop of black makes you black. This um, had so much power that people could use this in the courts to actually uh, drive fear into other individuals. Mm -hmm. I I heard that your grandmother may have been black, even if we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And this would go through the courts. I mean, it was a big deal. A primary example of how the law is used to establish race is the case of Susie Phipps, who in the early 80s sued the state of Louisiana over her designation as being colored. Phipps, who argued that she believed herself to be white her entire life until she went to apply for a passport and saw that on her birth certificate that she was designated as colored, argued that the Louisiana state law, which designated her as colored, was unconstitutional and unlawful. The law actually argued that if you contain more than one thirty-second of black blood, meaning if one of your great-great-grandparents was black, you were considered to be colored. Phipps would lose this case. And furthermore, adding to the controversy, many of Phipps's relatives openly acknowledged that they had black ancestry and that Phipps knew that she had black ancestry and that she was trying to move away from it or hide the fact that she was black. But this case also demonstrates the way in which the government has codified race and that laws have been established to dictate who is and who is not white. And this has been very important to understanding the development and the shape of policies that we see in the U.S. today. In Latin America, I'd argue they have a a reverse one-drop rule. One drop of white makes you not black, right? So historically, Latin America, they, instead of believing that uh, blackness taints, they believed that whiteness elevates, that if we could whiten the population, we could better it. They did this through uh, movements, blanqueamiento, so whitening, where they actually brought populations from Europe to come and to whiten the population within these particular countries um, that practice this. Um, so, and, and, and to some extent, this, this is still ingrained. I remember my own grandfather mentioning things like mejorando la raza, bettering the race. Mm-hmm. So entrenched. He wasn't much, um, he was just a little lighter than you. Mm-hmm. And he would say things like this. It was so ingrained, this idea that uh, whiteness could elevate, that if you could find characteristics that you could link to whiteness, that, that could uh, improve your standing, improve who you are as a person, right? And so that that meant that there was a lot of racial mixing. So whereas here we had miscegenation laws and things that tried to create a clear boundary mm-hmm. between those who are white and those who weren't, in Latin America, 
that that boundary was not there. In fact, they promoted racial mixing. And so you have many more people that look like me that are kind of in the middle of the skin tone spectrum. This is where all these categories come from. Um, Trienio, uh, uh, Habao, um, Indio. Um, these, all these things come from this kind of mixture over time because then you have people look so many different ways. But the the sad part about it is that it, it may be different, but in some ways it's exactly the same, right? Blackness is seen at the bottom of the hierarchy, whiteness at the top. The difference, really the the key difference is uh, how bl- how perceived blood works, the okay. power of blood. So Sir Francis Drake, um, in his book, Black Folks Here and There, I believe it was chapter one, speaks about, um, you know, three, um, three parts of racial ideology. Mm-hmm. And um, the first one was an aesthetic appraisal of f- physical features. Um, the second one was tying those physical features to a temperament of body, ability of the mind. But the, the last one was the, the power of blood to elevate or taint. And that was really powerful because what he was doing was speaking to the way racial ideology works around the world. That in some ways, it's exactly the same. There's still an aesthetic appraisal of physical features. Um, there's still a clear bias toward Euro, towards Eurocentric beauty in Latin America, um, just like there is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and most definitely a... Um, a den- denigration of those who um, have more uh, stereotypical or traditional uh, African features, right? Mm-hmm. A darker skin um, and phenotype. Um, and um, so this power of blood to elevate or taint really speaks to just uh, which way blood works, right? And here in the U.S., one drop rule. Any drop of black makes you black. In Latin America, any drop of white makes you not black. Okay. But the rest of it is pretty much the same. Okay. Right. And so some ways it's it's actually almost exactly the same, but that is what makes it different. And that is what uh, people bring when they come. This kind of aspiring to be white, something that uh, doesn't happen in the same way in the U.S. because there wasn't this promotion of this belief that whiteness could elevate. Right. So mm-hmm. so while people may still have colorism, it doesn't. Uh, uh, it's not nearly as entrenched or as powerful as it is in Latin America because in Latin America, everyone's always striving for whiteness okay. in, in a sense. Or not everyone, but many. And it's ingrained in, in the culture. If we think about the various ways in which people see blackness or and, and whiteness, and I think about things such as Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and the, the attempt to create kind of a global or a diasporic um, coalition... To give a little bit of background, Marcus Garvey is the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which in the early 20th century was a pan-Africanist movement. Uh, Garvey, originally from Jamaica, worked to try to unite people of African ancestry all over the globe, working in the U.S., the Caribbean, Latin America, Europe, and working with groups in Africa. Garvey hoped to provide an African nation or a homeland in which people of African descent could move to, to escape white supremacy. Garvey's movement was seen as the largest movement of African-Americans within the 20th century, as it, not only of African-Americans, but those within the African diaspora in the 20th century, because it touched on so many countries and so many continents. Garvey and the UNIA would eventually meet their downfall when Garvey was convicted of mail fraud and later deported to Jamaica. While there are questions about the authenticity of the mail fraud that he was convicted of, it was clear that the UNIA suffered from a number of problems regarding the skill of the workers as well as the amount of fraud that they faced from those who were seen as supporters. 
But one of the things that really sticks out about the Garvey mail fraud case is that this was the case that launched the career of future FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who would be a thorn in the side of King and other civil rights leaders as he saw them as a threat to the United States. Does this undercut this? So if you think of this, like attempts with Garvey, attempts during the Black Power movement, do does the, I guess, the differences or complexities within Latin America um, and also the Caribbean undercut or help in terms of, I guess, identif- this reification of a Black identity to create some type of movement to protect Black interests globally? I wouldn't say that it undercuts it, but I would argue that it probably makes it more difficult, for sure, because um, um, the the idea that the power of blood to taint means that uh, this kind of Black coalition is anyone and everyone who can say, I have Black ancestry, so I'm Black, right? Um, but in Latin America, um, there wasn't much of a focus on Black ancestry. In fact, many countries didn't even acknowledge that they had black populations there and that those black populations may in fact be a significant proportion of everyone's ancestry, right? Mm. And so um, and so in, in countries where this is the case, the, the question becomes, where's the line for who is black? It, is everyone black, right? Mm. Um, are some people black? So I'm, I'm Dominican. And if you go to Dominican Republic, I'm really light-skinned. In the Dominican Republic, um, by American standards, I'd probably argue that ninety to ninety-five percent of the island is black, um, but they don't believe that. Okay. And I'm sure there's some that'll hear this and be very angry with me for saying it. Maybe even some in my family, right? But in terms of ancestry, as we understand in the U.S., it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question becomes: Then where does that coalition come from? Right now, in countries like that, the coalition comes from those individuals who are most marginalized. Uh, in the Dominican Republic, those are those who are darkest populations there. Uh, many of them are Haitian. Um, uh, many of them are Haitian. Many of them are also Dominican. Same island, really same ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is where a lot of the um, kind of the movement, mm-hmm. that is where it's taking root, is in those individuals who are most marginalized. And they clearly are. Even there where, where I'm the light-skinned person, you can see the defining lines. You can go to the wealthy areas and see individuals who are light-skinned living in homes with armed guards walking around blocking their neighborhoods. And then you go to public housing or to the campo, right, to the country, and um, people are much darker. Right? They look different. So you see that even there. But this coalition building becomes more difficult when um, you're in a, a place where, in, in essence, almost everyone's mixed, right? And so mm-hmm. the question is who actually is. And this isn't the case everywhere. So there are some places where there's some clear defining lines. There are some um, there's some real um, um, entrenched uh, diasporic movements in Latin America, particularly in countries where um, where the predominant uh, population is actually indigenous. And so the black population is fairly small and distinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to say that it, there also isn't some inter, inter uh, interracial kind of mixing or yeah. in terms of ancestry, but that there are often distinct groupings and populations live in particular areas. And, and they've, in fact, in some ways, maintained kind of cultural ties to it and things like that. And so you see these movements rising out of these spaces, right, where people are trying to um, to to link themselves to this kind of broader movement. But um, while that works uh when when it's known, well, it works better in some of these spaces. In other places like where I come from, it's um, not maybe moving at the same pace, right? Okay. People aren't gaining that consciousness in the same way. And I think that some of that uh, may be the issue. 
So how does this translate into, um, so given the um, immigration patterns and the, these groups moving into the U.S., how does this translate into understanding uh, race relations within the U.S. is for, for understand you said like come the second or third generation, um, they I guess come to the conclusion like I guess I am black uh, at least within this U.S. context, and I'm assuming with the first and second generations there's a bit of um, uh, I guess I mean, cognitive dissonance or some some type of difficulty trying to figure out where exactly you fit. And so how do, how does like, does this play out in the in the U.S. with the first, second, I guess, and third generations? Yeah, there most definitely is um, a greater resistance because in Latin America, part of this kind of uh, uh, aspiration of whiteness or aspiring towards whiteness is a kind of a pushing away of blackness, anything you can to kind of move away from that. And so uh, people in Latin America in most countries are very hesitant, um, if not even, I'd say, not hesitant, maybe it's a soft word for it, um, to identify as, let's say, black, right? Mm -hmm. And so... You move to a you move from a country where you're not black, right? Only those who are at the most extreme of the spectrum are black, mm -hmm. and then you go to another country, and all of a sudden you're black. Maybe not immediately. You might not see it immediately, right? You don't have the same um, socialization, understand all the cues that we understand, right? I see things and I go, that's probably racism. And and when people are immigrants, just generally, they tend to not have those kinds of understanding of the cues to be aware that the way they're being treated is tied to a, a history of of racism, right? Okay. Um, and so they may not be immediately aware. But the payoffs to their degrees are different. Their opportunities are different. Um, individuals, especially from those from Latin America who are um, have African ancestry, tend to be more likely to be segregated with African Americans. And over time, there is, um, over generations, there is some of this kind of, I hate to say the word assimilation, but as individuals detach from this kind of pan-ethnic identity or, or maybe national origin identity, um, there is more this move towards racial categories that are traditionally understood in the U.S., depending on what racial category one would actually be ascribed as. I have actually some work looking at that specifically, looking at how over um, between adolescence and adulthood mm -hmm. um, individuals change and how skin tone is a primary driver of that. So that's something that we're actually sending out for review soon. Okay. Hopefully it'll be out or something I'll send you when, um, when it's out. But it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, this idea of uh, generations. So I'm second generation. Okay. I would say in some ways I discovered my blackness, All right. uh, even though there's uh, even those clear African ancestry in my family. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's something that I wasn't uh, taught to know was there, mm -hmm. um, but I was clearly told was from the other people in my daily experiences. Um, and that's that's shaped both the experiences I've had and also now in some ways how I identify. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, I would say that I came to it much more quickly than my mother did, All right? right? Yeah. Who, who's first generation and arrived here um, in her late teens. Okay. And so there is this kind of movement over generations. And in fact, um, you know, the Caribbean populations, uh, Afro-Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican, um, they're along the East Coast of Central America, Venezuela, um, have been coming here for a long time. Yeah. And many people who have that ancestry, uh, people don't know do. In this first part of our interview with Professor Irizarry, she has highlighted the complexities of understanding race and how the Latin American experience really highlights the difficulties of understanding race and that race is a social construction and that the way we understand race in the U.S. differs from how we understand it in other nations. But it is clear that the assimilation process sticks out and as 
darker skinned Latin Americans come into the U.S., they begin to understand that they are black. And through that, they develop a new identity. And it's very important for us to understand that the complexity of the Latin American experience with race adds extra textures or layers to our understanding of race in the U.S. In the next episode, Professor Irizarry will point out many of the misconceptions that we have in regards to our study of race and how many of the findings that we have that have gained a great deal of attention within the social sciences may actually be more complicated than we realize. And particularly, she talks about painting a better picture by demonstrating the complexity of the lives of racial minorities. And in doing so, the hope is to create better policy. Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio. Thank you.